This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. What happens when a lifeline for kids experiencing mental health crises isn't working like it should be? I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Illinois has a statewide program that's supposed to connect kids from low-income families with mental health services that they need. It's called SAS, which stands for Screening, Assessment, and Support Services. But a new WBEZ investigation finds that many children in crisis are falling through the cracks. Let's check in with WBEZ reporters Sarah Karp and Kristen Schorsch, who spent six months looking into this issue. A warning to listeners, there will be moments where we talk about self-harm and suicide. Kristen, I want to start with you. What prompted this investigation? A conversation with Sarah. I'm going to toss it to Sarah because really, like, she, she came up to me many, many months ago last fall, right, I think, talking about how she wanted to dig into something. What stuck out to you, Sarah? Well, it's actually... A conversation I was having with a school social worker, and it was about a completely different story. But she just said to me, "Um, I had a child who was suicidal who I called the state hotline to try to get him help and wound up sitting with him for like five hours. And she just said, you should do a story about that. And I went back and I was like, you know what? That's pretty messed up. We should do a story about that. And so Mm -hmm. then I walked up to Kristen. I said, what is going on here? And that's sort of how this came to be. Because I cover healthcare and Sarah covers schools. So exactly. It's kind of like the perfect match of digging into these two different, kind of how these two different beats intersect. Absolutely. Well, let, let's dig in here. How long has this screening assessment and support services program been around, Kristen? Yeah, so it's been around about 20 years. And so this is meant to be essentially like an equalizer, a gateway for kids who are low income, have Medicaid or no insurance, as a way to get them treatment immediately. We're talking kids who are suicidal, kids in severe emotional distress, Um, because typically a child who has private insurance, not that it's easy, but it's easier for them to get treatment because Mm -hmm. more doctors are willing to take them. So SAS was really created to to get low-income kids help faster and to also prevent any unnecessary hospitalizations that were happening. Yeah. Sarah, how exactly is the program meant to work and how are kids actually referred to the service providers? So it it can work many different ways. So it could be, for example, a child um, comes home or, you know, is at home and is threatening suicide, threatening to harm um, themselves or someone else. Or they go to school and something comes up and the counselor, the social worker becomes aware that they're in trouble. Or sometimes like a parent will bring them to a hospital and say, you know, my child's in distress. So any of these ways, they call a hotline. 
the hotline does um, sort of a brief assessment and sort of determines, is this a crisis? And if they determine this is a crisis, they're supposed to send um, somebody to do a mental health assessment out to the school or the hospital or the home within 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then that, after that assessment, there's a referral, and it's either to outpatient care or to um, inpatient care. And then that's supposed to happen. <laughs> but what, uh, what we found is that a lot of times there's two breaks. One, it's, it's taking a long time for SAS providers, for the people to, who do the assessments, to get to the schools or the homes or the hospitals. So kids are waiting for a really long time. And then when they do make referrals, it's often not to really anywhere because there aren't services available. Mm. Well, you sat in during a call assessment with crisis worker Randy Sadler, who spoke to an interpreter and a child that's living on the west side. Let's listen to a little bit of that. Did you say that you wanted to commit suicide by grabbing a knife while your parents were sleeping? So what did, what did Randy, who's the, the crisis worker, what did he ultimately decide for treatment? He decided that child needed to go to inpatient treatment. Yeah. He needed um, a, a hospitalization. And, you know, what wound up happening is that the mother and the child wound up refusing. And, and one of the reasons why was that she was asking a lot of questions like, where would this be? And it turned out that the hospital would, would probably be far away. Randy was saying that he doesn't know where he'll find a bed because it's hard to find a bed. He'll have to call around. And that it could be for as long as 14 days or even longer. And, you know, as the conversation was going on, there was mounting um, trepidation by the mother who, you know, she's seeing her, her child and she's thinking that he's not going to be there. And I remember she said something like he wants to eat dinner with his family. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a really sad conversation. It was a really sad conversation. Um, and she wound up taking her son. But then right afterwards, you know, Randy's required to call the um, the DCFS Child Protective Services to get somebody out there because, you know, he was really, I mean, he was really truthfully scared that this child was you know, going to take action. I can only imagine. And that that is like the, you know, that's the thing that he's trying to prevent. I mean, so he he had to call them. But, you know, you always feel bad because, you know, this mother, she's not she's not doing anything wrong. She's just scared, you mm-hmm. know. And and I, I kind of do feel like if they didn't have to do the assessment over the phone, yeah. he had to do it over the phone because she was on the west side, he's on the south side. There's no, there was, the SAS provider from the west side had, you know, recently stopped gotten out of the program and to to sort of try and make that 90 minutes you know they they do these over the phone but there was a it felt like there was a lot lost by that interaction not being not being in person Kristen we we're talking here about kids experiencing mental health crises right so that we're clear what could be considered a crisis well i mean sas design is designed for kids in the most extreme circumstances so kids who are um, having suicidal thoughts, who have attempted to harm themselves or others. Um, also aggressive behavior, you know, very aggressive behavior, throwing chairs, threatening others, things like that. It's it's not designed to be um, maybe this kid is slightly acting out in school, mm-hmm. so let's call SAS. No, it is supposed to be like these kids need immediate help. This cannot wait. And how young are we talking about? Well, I mean, it's it's, you know, Youngest child up to 18. Like, that's yeah. what we were looking at. broad into. range. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There was certainly we were looking at some data by age. And, I mean, there were certainly four-year-olds for which calls were coming in. There actually is, you know, a lot of 
angst among SaaS providers about the number of times that that schools call because they often feel like maybe because the schools don't have resources, they're calling too often. So that if the if the school had enough resources to to really work with with children, maybe they could prevent some of the calls, prevent things from becoming a crisis. But also maybe maybe these aren't so bad. It's like hey, Randy, you know, told me about this this child that was a five year old that was like on a desk throwing chairs. Well, that sounds yeah. horrible. the The child does sound like he's having you know a, a very bad day. But, you know, there might be a way if the school had the resources to really work with the child and not, like, put him in the situation where maybe he would be, you know, hospitalized or, you know. Yeah. This is this is tough. Uh, any more issues that we should dig into with this, this program, Kristen? What else is not working? Because I, I understand there's also a number of, of issues, including kids just being waitlisted. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, there's so many issues we could talk about, right? Sarah and I have been looking into this for like six months. Um, one of the big things that we wanted to know about this program was what are the outcomes? What's actually happening to children yeah. who go through SAS? Um, and so, you know, we filed a lot of public records requests with the state. It took a very long time to get answers. We initially were told a lot of this data didn't exist, and that really wasn't true. But ultimately, so of the outcome data, you know, when you think about all the kids who are screened through SAS – for, you know, if they're in a mental health crisis, yeah. um, I believe Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, it was like 40% of the data was missing. And so even to us, it's, it's unclear. The state's not tracking those children. Are they getting the help they need? And then when you think about if you go the route of hospitalization, there are very few hospitals in the state. Only 15% of hospitals in Illinois have psych beds for children. So it's very hard to get a bed. So children are literally crisscrossing the state looking for one. There are no beds on the south side. And there are very few in rural pockets of the area. And so you have kids downstate who are coming to the Chicago area where most of these beds are, leaving their families far from home. Um, and then, like Randy had talked to Sarah about, you know, on the south side, having these families have to leave their environment and their neighborhoods yeah. to go. If you think about the outpatient route, so the bottleneck of not having inpatient, right, you have these kids stuck in the ER. If you think of the outpatient route, the wait lists are very long especially if you have Medicaid. I mean, we talked to clinics and therapists who were like, our wait lists are so full, they're closed. We are oh not goodness. taking any more. And, um, and just the, the difficulties we heard, especially for kids to ha- who have Medicaid, to get into inpatient hospitalization was, My gosh. was really just incredible. Um, you know, if you have uh, youth care insurance, so if you are a child in the foster care system, you typically have youth care insurance. That is among the hardest things to place that child because the state often doesn't have a plan for where to go when these kids are supposed to leave. So they get stuck in hospitals. That's that's not new. That is a continuing crisis. It's heartbreaking yeah. is what it is. Yeah, uh, like if that. you live in Illinois and your child or adolescent is experiencing a mental health crisis, you can contact the CARES hotline at 1-800-345-9049. If you are someone that you know may be considering suicide, contact 988. That's the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. So, Sarah, back over to you. Any sense of which kinds of, of treatment kids are being referred to more often? Yes. So the data that we received um, shows that of the people who they've tracked, which is not everybody, but that the the majority, the slight majority, like 55% last year, were referred for community stabilization which is outpatient care, basically, um, from what I can, from what we can uh, tell. So, so that's the majority. But then, the, the the problem is, is that just because you're referred to 
to community stabilization or outpatient care. That does not mean, for example, that we know for sure that you actually had treatment Mm -hmm. at all. And the state says that just this year they're starting to ask the um, private Medicaid um, insurers to provide some documentation that shows that there was an actually an appointment mm-hmm. post a SAS, a SAS call. So, so that that's something that they're starting to track. But why they haven't been actually, you know, really tracking that um, is really, really beyond me because this seems like something you'd want to know. When kids are sent to the inpatient treatments, though, right, like a psychiatric unit, I understand that they end up going really, really far. They can go really, really far. I mean, it was... Really crazy. We talked to one um, SAS provider who was like, I call Tennessee and I call Indiana and wow. I call, you know, I like she's calling all over, all over the, you know, the Midwest and um, trying to get a bed. And, you know, she was saying, like, if we do have to send a child all the way over there, the, the problem is they don't have a way back. Yeah, they take an ambulance there and then they have to find a way home. My goodness. I mean, I think to like imagine this, like the other thing about this is that. All the SAS providers across the state and anyone else who was calling for a psych bed for a child, they have the same short list. So imagine they are all calling for the, the same places every single day looking for a bed. So children are competing for beds across the state. And most of those psych beds are in the Chicago area. So you imagine kids downstate, central Illinois, they're having to come up here for care. My and sometimes, goodness. you know, one Chicago hospital told me that sometimes they'll send a kid down to Champaign if there's a bed. So really, like children are just they're they're scrambling to find to find treatment. And the ones that don't get any of this, right? If if a child is just not followed up with, Kristen, what happens there? Are there plans set in place for when that happens? No, I mean that's the problem is we don't know what's happening to those children. I know a lot of family physicians, for example, some of the clinics were telling us that if a, one of their patients is admitted to an inpatient psych hospital, you know that child when they when they leave, they really need perhaps intensive therapy. And that's something that like primary care clinics really don't offer. Yes, sure, they have, um, they do have behavioral health, of course, but they don't have it to the level that maybe these children need. And so what happens, like one clinic told me, they'll have children come from the inpatient psych unit back to the doctor's office, mm-hmm. and then they just become frequent flyers through SAS because they are not getting the level of care they need. So we see really what's happening as we see like pediatricians' offices kind of becoming almost like the the stopgap in between these kids to make sure they don't fall through the cracks. If they're waiting for outpatient therapy, for example, mm-hmm. maybe the pediatrician will provide, you know, a bridge for a little bit, mm-hmm. and, you know, if the waiting list is really long or maybe anxiety medication, things like that. So really, but I mean, that's the big thing is we, we don't know what happens to a lot of kids who fall through the cracks. And as you talk about the, the long waiting lists for, for therapists, do many therapists even take in children as patients, what about kids with Medicaid even? Yeah, I, there seems to be a huge issue there too. You know, Medicaid does not pay as much as private insurance. And, you know, these days therapists and counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists are in such heavy demand that some of them have stopped even taking private insurance. They want people to pay out of pocket. And, you know, that's like, okay, can you come up with $120 oh, or probably, 100 Far more than that. I'm oh, sure. far more. <laughs> I don't even know. But, I mean, you know, who has... Who has that cash sitting around? Especially if you're on Medicaid, that means that you're low income. So you you just don't, I mean, you would not have that money. And so, you know, you do find people, you know, just lining up, putting their names on on lists. You know, this this one mother that I talked to named Melina, like, 
she she's a very active mother. She's like involved in the community organizations. She's very involved in her schools. And she was able to find an organization. And, you know, she was like able to convince them to get her child in. But, you know, and she was really had to be very, very persistent to, to do that because everywhere that the that was referred to her was telling her long lists, you know, and, and so basically she had to find a place on her own um, outside of this. And, you know, you ask about like what happens to these kids. The the one thing that we were able to find out is that one third, one in three kids that um, has a call within a year has another call in that same year. Incest. So in SAS. So wow. what that tells you, I think, is that, you know, if you have one crisis, this child is having more than one crisis in a year. And so maybe they're not getting any treatment or enough treatment or enough, you know, you'd think that if a child is, you know, has a second crisis and they already have a therapist, yeah. that you'd be calling the therapist, not calling SAS. So that, you know, indicates that maybe they're just not getting anything. Something is not working. Yeah. You talked with a number of crisis workers and hospital staff for this investigation. Here is Dr. Ashley Magda talking about just the very nature of her work at St. Bernard Hospital. This is on the Chicago South Side. Some days it has a big emotional toll and you just think about certain cases. How are we supposed to expect them to go succeed in life if we're not giving them the foundation that we know they need? We know this is obviously tough on, on, on the kids here. How are support workers doing? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. Um, Dr. Magda has spent her entire career at St. Bernard she watches kids come in at least once a week. They have a child who comes to the ER there um, in mental health crisis. She told me about one uh, teenage boy who last year came to the ER eight times in mental health crisis, and they could not find him a psych bed. And so eight times, eight times. Um, and she told me how a lot of these kids get labeled. Um, St. Bernard has a lot of group homes surrounding in the community surrounding the hospital. And so they they have a lot of kids who become who come in for like behavioral issues and SAS will be called and finding them a bed can be incredibly hard. So these kids are just lingering in the ER. Um, It takes a toll. I mean, it takes a you know, Dr. Magda was telling me like she she is a mom. She really feels like she's an advocate for these children. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very frustrating to see them cycling through the system and not getting the help that they need. You know, after your conversations, Sarah, with with these SAS providers, do you get any sense of how they could be better supported by the state? Well, they would love to have places that they could send kids and know that the kid will actually get treatment. I mean, they they call this a a, a warm handoff, and you know that that they don't they don't feel like they have that type of support. I know one of the things that the state is trying to put into place this this um, program called Pathways, which is supposed to pour money into, you know, some organizations to provide, A, more care coordination. So SAS is really supposed to be doing some care coordination. They're supposed to help it. But this is an additional program. And then also um, some intensive mental health supports in homes. And, you know, I think that the SAS providers would love to have those things in place that they can, like, for sure tell a mom, listen, you're being referred to this program. This program is going to really help you. Mm-hmm. This program is going to wrap their arms around you and help you help you through this process. So, I mean, if that can happen, that would be great. But it has taken the state a very long time to mm-hmm. get this, this program underway. It's been, you know, in the works for, for years. And, 
you know, they're still trying to hire people to do this work. And that's one of the big problems here is that this is really, really hard work and it's not paid particularly well. And so finding people who can be in it and be in it for a long time is very difficult. Well, there's also the workforce shortage in healthcare in general which makes all of this is kind of like almost like the underpinning of all of this too. You've got greater need for children in mental health care right now with COVID and you don't, you have fewer people to help treat them no matter where it is right in the hospital and the outpatient setting. Mm-hmm. So all of that is a problem. Well, you've spent more than half a year on this investigation. I imagine you're going to keep an eye on the SAS program and be able to report back. Yeah. I mean, we've been, we've been calling lawmakers. We've yeah. been reaching out, telling everyone we talked to for the story, like, Thank you so much for helping us tell this and humanize this. But, yeah, we're going to keep an eye on it. We'll leave it there for now. Once again, if you live in Illinois and your child or adolescent is experiencing a mental health crisis, contact the CARES hotline at 1-800-349-9049. And if you or someone that you know may be considering suicide, contact 988, which is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. That's WBEZ Public Health in Cook County reporter Kristen Schorsch and education reporter Sarah Karp. Read their investigation into SAS, that statewide mental health program for low-income kids, by heading to our website, wbez.org. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of The Reset Podcast was produced by Micah Yason and edited by Stephanie Kim. If you have a minute, listen to our conversation from earlier in the week about a ProPublica investigation that shone a light on how students are being ticketed for minor offenses in Illinois schools and how that work prompted a new bill in Springfield that aims to make the practice illegal. You can find that one by scrolling through our podcast feed. That's it for this episode of Reset. We hope you'll join us for another one soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.